everyone. I'm Charlie Levine with Angler's Journal, and this is the Angler's Journal podcast. Uh, today, we're going to do something a little different. Joining us is Bill Sisson. How's it going, Bill? Hi, Charlie. Good to see you. Happy to be with you this morning. It's great to see you, too. Um, so, Angler's Journal, you know, we've always really embraced storytelling. We love telling stories, and that's what the magazine's all about. But we've never really told the Angler's Journal story. So, The origin story. The origin, like where it all started. Yeah. Where did it start? And Bill, obviously, you are the founding editor and editor-in-chief of the magazine, so would just love to learn more about how you got the idea for the magazine and, and how it all kicked off. Sure. be happy to tell the story. I mean, I've been in the, in the magazine business probably almost 35, 40 years when we started Angler's Journal, so had a lot of experience putting together marine magazines, mostly boating magazines, but you know, they also covered some fishing. And then around 2013, the Active Interest Media Marine Group, which we all belong to, wanted to do something in the fishing space, and I got tapped to you know, kind of lead that project, and that led to Angler's Journal. But, uh, you know, it was something that's been kind of percolating mm -hmm. in back of my head for a long time, and I just wasn't totally satisfied with the magazines that were on the market. They were fine magazines, a lot of how-to stuff, but it wasn't what I was interested in reading. So I wanted to create a magazine that I would want to read and that the guys I fished with would want to read. Yeah. And did you always have the name Angler's Journal in mind? I think it's just such a great name. Obviously, every fisherman or fisherwoman has a story to tell and a, a place they love or, or something about the sport that really touches them. So was that name something you always wanted? You know, I think we, at that time, it was... Uh, four or five years after the Great Recession, and frequencies are already starting to change, you know, how many issues you produce in a year. So it seemed like it was going to be a quarterly from the start. So a journal just seemed to make more sense and was broad enough to encompass, you know, everything we wanted to do in it. I love it. I, I love the name. And, you know, just so our listeners know, you and I have known each other for quite some time now. It's, it's like actually over 20 years, which is yeah, kind of terrifying. 20 but plus years, I think. Yeah, I was just a kid out of school with a journalism degree and um, living at my mom's house and applied for a job through Soundings Trade Only, another magazine over there. And uh, you were one of the first folks to interview me and you've always been uh, a great mentor and friend. And, you know, when you did start a AJ, you, you sort of reached out and let me know. And um, when you explained it to me, I was like, wow, that sounds so different than all the other fishing magazines I'd been involved with. Um, you know, how did you want to differentiate and, and get these fresh voices? Well, you know, there were, there's certainly nothing wrong with the fishing magazines that were being published at the time, but they focused more on how to, and they covered a lot of boat tests, which are fine too. I've, I've had a boat for 40 years. And I love boats, but you know, sometimes all the pages were involved with boat tests and some of the rest of the pages were devoted to how to, or really kind of glamour shots it was you know mug somebody holding a a fish and being really highly manicured or in a bikini not that we buy yeah. bikinis but <laughs> you know, it didn't look like the world that i knew so i wanted to create more of a magazine that was story driven because i was you know i've been a reporter and a writer and i like stories so we wanted to do old salts and young people and and mates and you know charter captains and guys that fish the surf and guys that spend, you know, a month in Alaska living in a tent catching salmon. So we wanted to really capture the nitty-gritty, 
you know, as well as some of the adventure fishing that was taking place everywhere. People going to Patagonia, going to Argentina, you know, fishing Costa Rica, going out to the fad. So there was just a, a big, exciting world out there that I thought we could take advantage of. I, and, you know, I think it was daring to do it that way. Most, uh, most successful fishing magazines or boating magazines are sort of regionally based or, you know, an offshore-based magazine or a fly fishing magazine. And AJ sort of crosses all the boundaries because for that reason, like you were just saying, and, and I, I can tell the readers love it. We get the letters and they tell us how much it means to them. And for me as just a, a reader, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to read a story about a kid who's, you know, a real scrappy young person just eking out a living as a deckhand and not making any money, but happy as can be. And then you flip the page and there's a very thoughtful poem about an experience on a river. And I mean, to be able to mix that up and do it well, I don't think people realize how difficult that is. And yet, you know, for you, it's so natural, it seems. Well, you know, it's part of, you know, it's part of that big, broad you know, tapestry that is fishing. So there's lots of ways to experience it. And, you know, through long form stories or, or longer stories, 2,000 words, 3,000 words, through short stories, three, four, or 500 words, 600 words, sometimes through a poem, sometimes just through the right photograph or group of photographs. Uh, you know, we wanted to have the right aesthetic feel, the right photographs that looked real, were, were real, they weren't posed, they were authentic, real people, doing real things, you know? So it was just a way to try to cover this broad saltwater world, freshwater world. And I'd fished in both and grew up fishing salt and fresh. So I had a broad interest and I liked to fly fish and I liked spin fish and I liked fishing conventional. I liked fishing with natural bait and live bait and artificial. So I had a broad interest in the different types of fishing. And I thought other people weren't that different than I was or I am. Yeah, and and we'll get into your fishing life, but I, you know, you brought up photography, and and that's definitely such a key component of Angler's Journal and running large photos, and you know the quality of the paper and the design. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you find those photos, or some of the photographers you work with, and and obviously the art director, right? Erin Ken is the art director. She does a great job. She's been. You know, putting the magazine together from from when we were just mocking it up back in 2013, and we launched it in the winter of 2014. So she was she's been here from the start, and you know, there's there's a, no shortage of good fish photos. The question is just you know, kind of finding the right ones that that look real and that that tell the complete story. So more than anything else, we didn't want a lot of selfies and we didn't want a lot of big trophy shots. We'd rather catch people kind of in the act or. You know, we'll run a, a photo with a little horizon that's not straight because, you know, more than anything, we wanted to, to reflect what's really happening out there. And I didn't see quite enough of that maybe in some of the other magazines. So, you know, we wanted the beautiful and we wanted the bloody. We weren't afraid of, of any of that. And we opened the book usually with four full-page spreads. It's nice to open with a pow. And you can say a lot, obviously, with a photo. That's kind of an old cliche, but it's, it's true. very true. So you have the right mix of photos, inshore, offshore, freshwater, you know, Rocky Mountains, Alaska, Patagonia. Yeah, take the reader to those places. Yeah, or the breaking surf and some guys getting completely doused in a big wave um, or a nighttime shot. It, it just shows, you know, just how broad this, this pastime, this affliction, this obsession of ours is. 
Yeah, that's a good word for it. And it does take us to some unique places and, and the people you meet, you know, it's like the, the actually reeling in the fish is such a kind of small part of the whole overall experience. And, and I, you do such a great job with the photos you select of showing all those bits and pieces. Um, you know, we just ran that story about a, a fly fisherman in Argentina and some of the photos were just of people. All right. and, and I loved him. And, you know, you yeah. really see the characters. He was called the Godfather was his nickname, you know. And, they, and those people, <clears throat> during the season, they would, uh, they would kind of camp out under a bridge in Argentina. And <laughs> only in Argentina, not, not in this country, clearly. And they had, they had all the wood slats pre-cut and they'd use plastic on the, uh, for the walls. And then they had the bridge was the roof. And they would move in there for a couple of months each year and set up big tables underneath and set some tents out, out, out around it. But it was... I mean, that's, that's the fishing world we like. It's, you know, the five-star lodges are a lot of fun and they're comfortable and, and all that, but it's nothing like sleeping in the dirt, too, underneath a bridge where yeah. the salmon are big and wild, you know, <laughs> to really bring you back to, you know, maybe how we all started. It's great. And, you know, in, in this country, I guess that would, you'd be considered homeless, but that is like the nicest <laughs> homeless camp I've ever seen. And they, they cooked together, and um, there was a quote in there that he said, Something about how, you know, fishing makes it a lot easier to make new friends. Yeah. And I feel like Angler's Journal is like a conduit to help people yeah. do that. How true that is. You know, so it's a big fraternity. You know, it's a big community. It's a big tribe, if you will. Um, and, you know, people relate to each other across techniques and across waters and across, you know, across countries in a lot of cases. And it, it, it cuts through a lot of our differences. So it's if you're... An angler, you know, it's easy to make friends with another angler, whether they're in Louisiana or Texas or Alaska or on the West Coast or up in Maine or in another country. You know, we all kind of speak the same language, you know, the language of fish and fishing. And we've all had those same shared experiences, even if they're not the exact experiences, but we all know what it's like to hook a fish, to be excited, to lose a big fish, you know, to be, you know, to fish in the rain, to fish in the cold, to, to not get a hit, you know. Yeah. And still we keep coming back. So... There's a lot of commonality among all the all the people in this group. It is nice to, you know, and we live in such a divided world, and yet you could drop a rich man and a poor man in a boat or, you know, a right wing and a left wing, and, and if they don't go there and just fish together, you know, it, it is a commonality. Like you said, it's really nice. Yeah, and that's, you know, that that joins all of us together. So we get letters from people, you know, around around the country sometimes from around the world who do all kinds of fishing and different stories touch them all in, in different ways and and they respond to the different things but there is that commonality that thread that that goes through all of us that kind of electrical charge in most you know sure so when you when some of our contributors reach out which is also really impressive at anglers journal how many different writers and voices you've been able to get into the magazine when they reach out, you know, how do you find the compelling story in, a, in one of their queries or when they tell you about a trip they're going on or something? You know, usually we have a conversation if someone sends an email and it sounds like an interesting story. You know, I like getting the phone with them and, and talk a little bit about what they, what they see to flesh out their idea a little bit more. And if it's a character, find out, you know, I'll interview the, the, the would-be writer about what makes this person, this woman or man special and you know if, if it sounds like somebody that i think the audience will be interested in then we usually go forward from there so it's it's just making sure that we're not doing something that's been done a hundred times before and that we found somebody that hasn't been written about a lot it's sometimes better although we do 
like to cover some of the icons sure. uh, of the industry, especially the ones that have been kicking around for a long time. I guess that's what makes them an icon. And, and they've all, they all have good stories to tell about their early years. I love that stuff too. On the waters and, and in the industry and whatnot. Yeah, there's been, uh, you've been able to work with some incredible writers um, and, you know, stories about guys like Jim Harrison and, and all those. Lefty um, Cray. And yeah, just Bob incredible. And those guys, yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's a story, I guess it was a couple issues ago, where you'll have to remind me the photographer was down in Baja on a fly fishing trip and then he noticed a local guy out there handlining from the beach catching snook right. just you know, kind of like a lasso would whip the lure around his head and throw it out. And, um, you know, you saw those photos and he, and he thought they were kind of just B-roll or something. And, and Right. That was Nick Price was down there camping on a beach and they were going for, you know, catching snook. They were trying to fly fish for snook off the beach. And he's, you know, they hadn't, the few days that he'd been down there, they had had much luck. <clears throat> and we talked to now, the, you know, the fishing wasn't that good. You know, maybe there was some too much rain and, it was kind of a washout, but he said there was one guy that come down every morning. He was a rancher, and he would, you know, fling this line around his head and throw a jig out. And I said, oh, that's, you know, we used to call it heaving heaving and hauling. And he said, yeah. He said it was really, you know, he was really coordinated. He could really throw it out to, you know, almost the farthest wave coming in. So I said, you know, show me the photos. And they, they really were artistic, and it looked like he was performing his own kind of ballet, his own kind of dance. So... From that, we built a, a feature around his beautiful sky, you know, and hauling in a snook by hand. It, yeah, it's just a rem- it was just beautiful and well done, and and I don't think any other magazine could do it, but Angler's Journal. Right. So, and that was a technique that they used, you know, in a lot of places, especially in New England for striped bass in the 1800s. So they would people would stand on the beach, they'd whirl a metal or lead jig around their head called a squid that. It was nicknamed a squid with a piece of, often a piece of cloth on the end, and they let it fly, and then go hand over hand as fast as they could and catch bluefish and striped bass that way. So wow. this fellow, this rancher, was doing the same thing. And it still works. Yeah, and it still works. He did well. And now let's talk about Bill Sis and the angler. So tell us about uh, your upbringing and uh, how you got into fishing. Well, you know, I was... I, my earliest memories are going along the seawall in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, where my father had businesses and his grandmother, my grandmother had businesses. And uh, just seeing these little fish flitting on the other side, maybe crabs, but I remember there were little fish and I would reach out and I was just, I was real small. My mother would grab the back of my shorts uh, or pants as I reached out trying to reach these things. And that's... And that's an earliest memory, I think, of wanting to get my hands around something like that. And then still as a real pretty small child, we used to fish off a town dock there. And I would sit between my father, say on my left, and my older brother, who was three years old, on my right. And we would all be fishing hand lines for cunners, or they call them bagals, off this dock with sea clams and, uh, and squid. And I remember that really well would break the break these big sea clams on the heads of the spikes that were holding the dock together. So whack, 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 and bait your hook and drop it down and, and wait for the little bite, and up they'd come. And, you know, there were a lot of cunners in those days, a lot of begals, not so many today, and um, that was great. I, and sometimes I'd take one and throw it to the gulls and learned how to call the gulls in and from a nearby dock and throw them a fish. And then 
as you got a little bit older, moved to a rod and reel and started catching snapper blues and tinker mackerel and, and winter flounder too. So that whole little, that, that town dock and there were three charter skippers who kept their boats there were kind of my little ecosystem for a bunch of years. So that's where I grew up learning to catch fish, pull splinters out of my backsides, learning to swear a little bit from listening to the charter guys who came in and, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Oh, sounds so cool. And for our listeners who don't know, Watch Hill is a, a beautiful summer town, kind of a vacation spot. And it's got the Atlantic Ocean on one side. It's got little Narragansett Bay, right? On right. the, on on the, the back side. And, and you in an inlet running to and fro and you can catch, you know, stripers and blues and all those things on the inside. And then obviously off the beach and it's a, it's a long walk out to the point there. Yeah. It's so, you know, when I grew up, the, the guys who really had standing in the fishing community were those who, who caught striped bass, at least the ones that I knew. And, you know, they were all adults, and, you know, that's who I wanted to be. And the charter boats came in when they had striped bass. That was a big thing. And uh, so I looked up to those guys, and that's kind of who I wanted to be when I got older. And, you know, I finally begged to get a surf rod for my father, and I worked I worked in a store and did a bunch of jobs. I got talking to the other day about washing the sidewalk, sweeping the sidewalk, washing the windows, doing this. Finally got my first surf rod and then, uh, you know, embarked on, uh, on surf fishing. Very cool. And this might be a poor analogy, but do you think that's sort of like when a musician gets his first guitar or something? It's something like that. I mean, I'd, I'd fished a little bit before that from the surf with an uncle, my uh, father's sister's husband who you know, World War II vet. He was from Tennessee. And he gave me a little fly rod to which he attached a small spinning reel and like a little Adam Popper. And he would pick me up in his pickup truck and we'd bounce down this rutted beach road in Weekapog, Rhode Island, and uh, and fish a spot along the beach where he'd had some luck in previous seasons. But the couple of seasons I'd fished with him, the fish had, you know, moved someplace else. And I didn't catch anything, but it was a good experience of just, you know, you know, they talk about Atlantic salmon being a fish of 10,000 casts. Well, it took me, you know, a lot of casting and a lot of fishing before I hooked my first striper from the shore. I didn't ever hook one with my, with my uncle kid, but he used to pick me up with a friend of his too. And I'd sit between the two of them. I used to, I used to say it's kind of like a fingling between lunkers. And even young and not having caught a striped bass, I could sense the kind of the camaraderie between these two guys as they told their jokes. And I know they told some off-color jokes, but I didn't understand really what they were talking about. And occasionally they would share a bottle. I only know that from kind of the smell of whiskey later. So we'd, we'd go bouncing down these dirt road in the fall, and you could smell rubber, hot rubber waders, whiskey, tobacco. And I said, man, this is... This is where I want to be. I felt right at home there. I was like, I feel safe. These are my people. With these guys, you know? Oh, that's, and you got pretty obsessed about it for a number of years. There's a, for all of our listeners who want to know a little bit more about Bill, there's a piece uh, that was published in the magazine. It's also on anglersjournal.com written by your wife, Patty. And she does a, a really wonderful job explaining about what it's like being married to a fisher person like yourself. Yeah. The striper's kind of, you know, like, like I said, the stripers held me in their sway. They've held me in my sway for more than 50 years. So fished them, pursued them real hard for probably 30-some years, almost 40 years, working hard during the day and then fishing hard into the night, you know, 
probably at least three nights a week, and sometimes more. Uh, I had one partner, and we fished three nights, three designated nights a week, and then I'd fish on the weekends, too, from the surf. That was mostly, we'd fish boat all the time. So we went hard, and we went long, and but we had the stamina and energy back then to, to do both jobs. Yeah, no, I, that's a that's a fun time of your life. Um, you know, there were times where myself, I slept on a cooler, like a 96-quart cooler in the back of a van. And, yeah. You know, those you, you form some good memories, and you learn a lot. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, it's like growing up, my dad always uses these sports analogies. You know, oh, well, I never really got a home run, but I, I got a couple doubles and triples in my life. And you could do the same thing with fishing. There's all these incredible lessons you learn. Right. Yeah, and incredible experiences and good people and you know just fishing hard and fishing long was important just to to learn a lot to see a lot and you know all that kind of went into angler's journal in the long run all those hours all those years all the characters you run into the language they use the language you use you know the disappointments the the accomplishments the joy freezing your rear end off getting soaking wet getting shut out catching a lot of fish it's part of it yeah the whole thing and so you, you talked, obviously, about boats there for a second, and I know you've always been a boatman, uh, been around boats too. Did your family have a boat, and is that how you got into it, or did you always sort of aspire to own a boat? I had a grandfather who, who had boats, and we got a boat. We got a, my older brother got a 13-foot whaler early on, so kind of grew up playing around that boat with him. And I had a lobsterman, quote-unquote uncle. He was a godfather of mine, and he was a lobsterman with a small boat. He lobstered off the Watch Your Lighthouse, where we spent a lot of time uh, surf fishing and also spear fishing. And so I was around boats. I was in and out of his boat a little bit. And, you know, then the path to striped bass eventually led me into boats. I mean, I got into boats basically because of the fish. Yeah, and you've had some beautiful boats. You you had a, a Boston Whaler that was very gorgeous and redone, and, and I love your boat now. Tell us about the, the Swamp Yankee. That's a 22-foot Sisu. It's kind of a downy style, downy skiff, flare, hard chime, but, but round bottom coming off of, round bottom coming off of that, a little keel. It's an outboard boat. It, it, ha- it looks like a little down east boat. It's yeah. got a really, I love the shape of the bow. It's got that sort of vertical bow. Um, it's yep. just, a, it, it suits you well. It's really. But, and my first boat was a little skiff too, a lobster skiff called a Tashmo, 18 footer outboard one. So I've always had a fondness for those boats. And the reason I, I think I bought a whaler later was because I'd grown up in that little 13 with my brother. So I was trying to recapture maybe some of those feelings. You know, we had the baby blue interior and we redid that. It was a, a dry hull, which was good. And we did a lot of a lot of fishing and a lot of fun. I bet. And you're also a surfer from back in the day, right? Yep. I surfed early on, surfed winters in Rhode Island, and traveled a bit to California and Oregon and Hawaii, and we surfed out there in Mexico. Uh, so Mexico. Always had a real comfort level in the water, which is good when you're fishing small boats in the middle of the night for striped bass. That you, don't, <laughs> no. you don't want to be too, you know. In a, in a very rocky part of the world. Yeah, a friend of my my partner for a decade or more, we used to talk on those summer evenings when it was calm and no chance of really getting into trouble. What we'd do if we ever sank a boat in the middle of the night, you know, could we make it to dawn? At that time, we were 
in our 30s and maybe early 40s, it was, you know, we figured, yeah, we know if the water's warm enough, we could stay afloat. We could try to swim to a buoy. We could at least be alive when the dawn fleet came out to kind of find us, you know? Jeez, it's good to have a goal. <laughs> and he was, a, he took people into Alaska kayaking in the 70s too. So he was, he was an adventurous soul and wasn't afraid of being on the water. But he was, you know, he was careful too. We both, I think, were careful because of our earlier experiences on the water. Yeah, I think you get a quite a, a good respect for, for Mother Nature and the ocean when you grow up in that environment. Yeah, you don't want to get caught inside breaking waves in a boat. You know, having been having been a surfer, I mean, you just know what kind of power is inside there. And if, when there's rocks around, it's just it's not the place to be. So, you know, we never found ourselves in that situation. No, you're going to lose. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to lose. Um, and you've caught some big fish. You just wrote a... a a piece that's out now in the in ang- the latest issue of Angler's Journal, and you caught some 50-pound-plus striped bass, um, which it looked like was a fantastic trip. But when I asked you about it, I felt like almost there were other bass in your lifetime that were probably not as big that meant more to you. Is that true? Yeah. You know, I, we, I don't think we've ever caught that many 50s and 40s in one day. We had three fish over 50, and I think we had, was it seven fish in the 40s? So that was a, Jeez. a really good day. And we fished with a guy named Chuck Manny. He's a great guy. who's a kind of interesting technique of trolling live eels off site planers. Planers, yep. And uh, he'd fish as many as 12, 13, 14 rods at once. That's a lot to deal yeah. with. So, and the fish, we'd, the fish would come up off the bottom to hit these live eels that were essentially being slow trolled across the top. So that was fun. He's a real guy. He's not a charter guy. He just takes people out who joys catching and tagging them and whatnot but you know i've always you know i like to find my own fish too so you know some of the big fish i've caught mm-hmm. were you know i figured out where i had to be and what the tide was and how to get the bait whatever the bait was and or lure and catch big fish so yeah you know i enjoy figuring it out just like everybody does i mean chuck had this place dialed in in the chesapeake bay yeah and yeah we reeled the fish in but you know the boat really caught the fish it is a puzzle, and it, being able to, to figure out the puzzle adds a layer of uh, enjoyment or satisfaction or something. Yeah, that's the most fun is really having an idea. You know, you look at the, you look at the time, you look at the calendar, you look at the season, and, you've, and after you've done it a while, you have a good idea where you should be and, you know, where you might find big fish and what the technique is. And then you go through losing enough big fish on tackle that's probably too light for them. Yeah. And then you, you know, you... Hard lessons to learn. Yeah, you upgrade, and then if you're looking for big fish, then you have to have the kind of the right tackle to handle, especially in the rocks. And we did all the surf fishing primarily was was from rocks, and then the boat fishing was drifting, either drifting over reefs or casting to rocky shores. There's just something so rewarding, though, about catching a big fish from the sand. I mean, it, it's so much harder and so much more work. From the sand is nice because, you know, there's no place for them to really go. From the rocks, from shore, from the rocks, it's difficult because, you know, they dive right in. And you can slip. And they scuff it. their, you know, they scuff their heads against the, the bottom. They wrap you around rocks. They cut you loose. I mean, I would love to get some of the fish I'd, I'd hooked in the rocks and lost on a sandy beach. But okay. know, we weren't the outer cape. But, we, you know, we caught some nice fish on the sand. But most of the big fish came on rocks and moving, and moving water, you know, some kind of tide, some kind of current. Yeah, that lighthouse, right? Lighthouse, but, you know, I fished Cuddy Uncle a lot, which okay. was, you know, all in heavy cover for 
fish, big fish in heavy cover, and they would dive kind of right down to the bottom, take you through some kind of maze that they lived in, kelp, rocks, barnacles, and kind of scuff, try to scuff you off. So let's talk about your book now, because, you know, all this talk about striped bass and, and how it's played such a big role in your life. And, you know, lo and behold, you're about to to have a striped bass book. And I've seen some of it, and it's absolutely gorgeous, Bill. You just did an amazing job on it. It's a, it's a handsome book. It's a pretty book. It's got over 150 color photos and 240 pages. But, you know, the, the book has been was something I had planned to do for 20-some years. I guess it was a long time coming. But, I, you know, I fished a lot. I took a lot of notes at the time and uh, recorded, you know, a lot of impressions and talked to a lot of people. And uh, so the book's going to be coming out this October, published by Rizzoli. And the title? Seasons of the Striper. And it's going to look at, you know, my obsession and the obsession of my friends as we chase fish across, you know, spring, summer, and fall from the Chesapeake all the way up to the Bay of Fundy. But mostly centering around, you know, southern New England area from Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Connecticut in the sounds and bays and the Rocky Islands. Well, it's going to be a, a great gift for uh, anyone who loves to fish for striped bass, of course, but but just in general. It's such a, a well-done book. It's got a lot of historical information, current information, great photos. Uh, it's available now to pre-order, right? Do you yeah, just it's available do it on Amazon for pre-order. Okay. And it's, you know, there's been a lot of books written on striped bass and it's not a it's not an encyclopedia you know it's not a textbook but it's it's more essays and we talk about one chapter just on the fish but it's told in the voice of others and in, in my voice too about what the fish does why it does what it what it does and why it's one of the most beloved saltwater game fish you know in the United States yeah and I can't wait to get my copy everybody should run out and get theirs um, Thanks, Charlie. And I just have to say, too, you know, it's been so much fun getting to work with you again. And I'm really proud to be part of the Angler's Journal family. It's a, it's a great group of people. And it's fun whenever I run into a reader to hear all the positive things they say. And uh, I appreciate you for, for getting this thing going and, and for building such a great foundation. Yeah. And I'm happy to, that you joined the team and, you know, we're going to be here for, for some time and, and continue the continue the legacy you know it's a it's a good brand and i think there's a place for magazines that that cover the broader horizon fresh and salt inshore offshore all kinds of types of fishing kids old timers women yeah no and it's it's a it's a huge slice of life of all different walks and uh it's nice it's nice to it's almost like a vacation just reading this book and 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 i know it's something that's enriched both our lives i mean you you fish often and have fished, and your father fished, and you came up in the in the field, and it's it's brought, you know, a lot of joy to me. It's it's a lot of my closest friends, you know, were former fishing partners of mine, and we've stayed friends long after the fishing ended. So it's just very cool. It's been a fun life. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate your time, and and you know, we'll be talking to Bill a lot more on the podcast. And for anyone who's not currently reading the magazine make sure to pick up a copy at your local newsstand or go over to anglersjournal.com and get a subscription that's the best way to do it and then you don't have to worry about it it'll just show up in your mailbox so bill i guess uh next time hopefully let's do this uh with on the water with, with a rod in our hands i think on the water is the way to do it thank you charlie it's good being here with you you too buddy thanks bye, bye.